0: Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damian. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of
1: social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want
0: interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And you are up this week, Aaron. What have you brought to the table today?
1: Um, I have, as promised, brought abolition feminism now to the table for us to discuss. You can hear it right here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's on the table now. It is literally Um, on the table. So this is a book uh, about the ways that feminism must be abolitionist uh, and abolitionism must be feminist. Uh, It's written by Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Erica Miners, and Beth Ritchie. Um, The book traces lineages of these ideas of abolition and feminism um, and how they've intersected in the past and the present. Um, So to quote the authors from the preface, uh, they said, We frame this book as a critical genealogy rather than a manifesto. One that emphasizes how important it is to trace political lineages. We offer a set of ideas and thick descriptions of unfinished practices rather than promoting rigid definitions. So they outline throughout the book the ways that abolition feminism is both something that exists Mm -hmm. and has existed um, and is continuing to evolve. Uh, through experiments and projects and curricula and zines yeah. uh, and toolkits and practice yeah, from people in yeah, the community, yeah. right? Um, they organized the book into three chapters. The first is a partial genealogy of abolition with feminist inflections. The second is a partial genealogy of anti violence feminist movements with abolitionist inflections. And chapter three is kind of this case study yeah. of how to map abolition feminism in a particular place uh, in this case it is chicago um, so there's so much in this book um, <laughs> and the authors do really well to present a variety of things a variety of movements um, and makes it feel really uh, rich yeah. um, and so yeah what what were your first impressions of the book
0: yeah i think that's a great way to describe it like there's so much in this book in terms that make it rich right there's so yeah. many examples right they're pulling sort of from both uh, examples and, and, and movements and work that's happening here domestically right in the, in the country, but also abroad, internationally. And so um, there's there's so much here. And I, I loved this book. I loved everything about it. Yeah, um, I really great. I feel, uh, I feel really enriched um, as a result of, of reading it. I'm so glad we finally got around to reading it. We've been talking about it forever here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just phenomenal. Um, I think they... I think the crew um, of, the, of these incredible women and authors uh, did a, a phenomenal job really detailing the, the history of um, abolition and feminism. Um, as I said, sort of both in the context of what's taken place here in our country, but also what's happened internationally and, and how both of those contexts have influenced each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was sort of one of the most incredibly powerful aspects of the book that stood out to me. Um, One of the other things that I think was um, one of the sort of critically important things that they did was they showcased what abolition and feminism um, look like today. Right. And, and I think more importantly than that, like how abolition and feminism are stronger together. Right. And so, so much of what they talked about in the now section, which I think is probably my favorite, Mm -hmm. um, really focused on that right like that so much of the now chapter as you said focused on chicago and using that as this case study and so i think it was a really fascinating and and compelling way to showcase how abolition feminism lives on the ground right and 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 can live on the ground and, and work to fight these these off these these systems right like oppression and violence and and white supremacy and the prison industrial complex and and really all of the things that Actively work against making us all safe and and free. So, um, I think I think I love that chapter in particular because it were it was this tangible example of abolition feminism in action, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. Which I think you know, as folks are maybe introduced to this topic, right, or this idea, or this, you know, political framework of abolition feminism, right, it's a sort of a, it's a, it's a way to sort of see it and how it is played out in a real place. Um, that's got, you know, real issues like every place. Um, and sort of, it, I think it also will help us to continue to have conversations and, and engage in this work, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I'm so excited <laughs> to talk about this book, and I, I, I remember sort of uh, being done with. Uh, so it's there's also like an epilogue, yeah. Um, and we sort of were reading a little bit of that together the other day. Um, I just sort of had the thought when we were done that, like, I don't think this is going to be a one and done thing for us, <laughs> right? Probably not.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I did think about setting this up from the beginning in that way, and yeah, um, yeah, just. It's right. decided to go for it. We'll we, come back to it. We'll later. come back to it.
0: Um, <laughs> it's it's that good. It's worth it. Yeah.
1: Um, but where do you want to start? I mean, so I I broke down. That's not the right way to phrase that. Um, I pulled from something from each chapter. Okay. Um, that there's so much in each chapter. Yeah. Um, the book is about 180 pages. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think each chapter is about uh, 55 pages a piece um so there i mean it's not you know it's it's not uh, super long it's mm-hmm. not uh, an epic novel right um but uh there you could pack a lot yeah you know, 55 pages and they do um and so yeah i tried to pull something from each chapter just All to right. kind of give a little bit of a, a sense of what each chapter is bringing okay um so the first one is abolition um and so the, the piece I brought from it is from a section called Strategy, Care, Not Cops. Ah, yes. Uh, and this section focused on the ways that abolitionists demand meaningful, affirming, and accessible services, including healthcare and housing. Uh, and so this section, I think, was really eye-opening uh, in terms of making connections between the ways that care... Um, such as drug treatment and mental health and being unhoused are essentially tied into the criminal punishment system. Yes, in ways that we don't talk about a lot. I think we've talked about it a few times on the on the podcast. Right. But the the things that they point out are connected to the th- to things we've talked about before. But they, I feel like they just bring it all together. Yes, uh, in a really. Um, astute way i guess yeah um so they also discuss electronic monitoring and the ways that turns homes into prisons Mm -hmm. uh, and quote wives mothers granddaughters daughters aunties sisters into unpaid jailers yeah um which is such a profound way to also frame that of somebody has an ankle monitor and so then their family becomes Their jailer in some way. Yeah.
0: Um, And again, speaks to that point about that we, I think we talked about, I don't remember which week, a couple of weeks ago, about mm -hmm. sort of extending the reach of the prison industrial complex. Yeah. That was, uh, we talked
1: about uh, Victoria Law and Maya Chenoir's um, panel discussion. Yeah. um, And their book um, that that panel discussion was about was actually cited in here. Yes. uh, In this chapter, which was, uh, you know, fun to see. Yeah. But the quote I wanted to bring uh, from this section is from the very end of the section. It says, even when we think we win or defeat proposed jail expansion or new construction projects, how and why and with what tools we struggle matters. Mm. And I think that's such an important frame for social justice work, uh, for for our work toward collective liberation, for abolition feminism, because it's not just about the outcome. But it's also the the process of how we get there that matters. Yes. Um, we've definitely talked about this on the podcast before. Um, but I, I wanted to bring it back to just to highlight that how we work with each other and are in relationship with one another. Um, that work matters just as much as what we win or don't win. yes, um, because it challenges the very structures that we're fighting against mm-hmm. when people are gathered together in principled struggle with one yes. another. Um, and are committed in to a, that in a community and yes. are committed to that 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 uh creation of solidarity um right is that's that's a challenge in itself that's yes. a victory in itself absolutely um that should be celebrated so that process matters yes um and that's a because, powerful force yeah, yeah. and cuz it centers the community and the needs of the yes. people who are impacted by um, this work or by the structures that you know we're fighting against, um, organizing against. So even if there isn't a win in the traditional sense, there's still st- all this success yes. um, of bringing people together uh, and lessons learned in how abolition feminism grows. Uh, and so that process itself is the development of more movement, of more organizing, of more leaders to take up this mantle and fight against the um, the things that are they're
0: not freeing, yeah, right? Not to fight us. for liberation. Absolutely, yeah. There's so much power in that, and I, I love everything you just said. It. Uh, I remember that particular section of that chapter, um, and I had so much highlighted in there. But I, I, I thought a lot about care as I yeah. read this book, and I, there are a lot of sections that speak to a lot of parts of this, um, book that speak to care. Um, and I think that was one of the most powerful pieces of the book for me. And, and as I sort of processed the need for, um, and the impact of abolition feminism, as they presented in this book, um, this idea of care and liberation, right. And how they're connected to one another. Right. And so I think what I mean by that is that there were so many examples in the book uh, as they talked about the history of abolition, the history of feminism, right, the power of abolition feminism, right, efforts that spoke to the need and this imperative to care for people in our communities with things like effective and accessible health care right. and housing and education um, and policies and laws and services, right, that aren't tied to or or have any kind of punishment attached to them. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think they made it clear that this is the only way to get us to that collective liberation that we're seeking. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and ensure that folks are ensure that folks are able to live, um, healthy, safe and thriving lives. Right. And so that it, it, it resonated with me so deeply because of like sort of, I think my natural orientation towards humanity. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a, there's a connection there. Um, And sort of like that we need to acknowledge and tend to people's humanities and to our collective humanity. Right. That's so big to me. Right. And so it's just another reason why, and, and, and so many of the examples and case studies that they shared spoke to this. Right. And it's another reason why abolition feminism is so, so powerful. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up and yeah, it spoke to me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, it's, uh,
1: the way they bring it all together and, and talk about, as you said, the, you know, the criminal punishment system and all that stuff was really, um, yeah, powerful. Right. I think. Um, so the the next piece that I have is from the feminism chapter. Yeah. Um, because that was the second chapter. How about it? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, this uh, was about reconceptualizing safety, okay. particularly in the context of gender violence. Okay. Um, and so, in the chapter, the authors write about how response to gender violence has largely become um, this project handled by incarceration and mm-hmm. in the prison industrial complex, um, which they go on to demonstrate hasn't been an effective way to resolve gender based violence. Yeah. Um, so, they say these can. Cons- These conceptualizations of safety require understanding that the pretext of ending gender violence allows the state to determine the nature of the problem, to decide on quote reasonable solutions, to categorize people as either deserving to be free from injury or not. These are the same tactics that people who cause harm in intimate relationships use. Arbitrary authority, attribution of blame to justify punishment, and expulsion of those who are objectionable threatening or obsolete. Mm. So I really appreciated this parallel of the way that the state operates and the way that an abusive um, partner does in in an intimate relationship. Uh, You know, the ways that that the critique of carceral feminism, of this focus on using the criminal punishment system and the prison industrial complex as the way to address... Uh, intimate partner violence or and other forms of, of violence in, in that sort of patriarchal masculine, toxic masculine um, way. way um, yeah. You know, I, the critique of that I think was really powerful yes. um, because it hasn't worked. It hasn't reduced the rates of violence. No. Um, and I th- one of the other things that I appreciated in this that I, I just hadn't seen it before is a critique of the violence against women act um
0: Mm, yeah
1: that kind of analysis that they brought um that they were citing some another scholar whose name i didn't uh did i am forgetting at the moment my apologies um but that also was really powerful to see this kind of very broad critique of how the state is making these decisions of who's worthy and who's not worthy Mm -hmm. right and you think about um things like uh missing and murdered indigenous women Mm -hmm. and that movement to to um acknowledge uh, the number of indigenous women who are missing and and or murdered and that's not necessarily within the framework of violence against women act right and um and in in the mainstream kind of ways that violence prevention um gender violence prevention is happening right um, and so it's another failure of mm-hmm. people right it's it's not um addressing the, the real
0: um all of the real problem not at all right it's not again tending to sort of the <clears throat> the realities of real people and in, in their mm-hmm. real lives right mm-hmm. and we're sort of um neglecting people forgetting people right in that process and i hadn't thought about that either the sort of critique that they had about the the act itself um, but i thought that was brilliant I really yeah. did. Yeah. And I think so, so much of that, and you've now talked about both of these, the, the first two chapters, right? Thinking about the history of abolition and, and, and the history of, of feminism, right? Like I think it, it again speaks to why they're stronger together. Yeah. Right. And I think throughout both of those chapters, they talk about, as you said at the, at the, the start of this show, um, Right, they were highlighting the histories and genealogies of both of those movements with the the other lens applied, right, and mm-hmm. sort of arguing that these things are stronger together, right. Um, yeah, and so I, I, that 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 is the point. That is it, right? That mm-hmm. is the the point that is driven home in this book, right? And, um, uh, I, you know. The 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 abolitionist practices are strongest and most compelling when they are also feminist and on the flip side, right? Feminism that is abolitionist, right, mm-hmm. is the most encompassing and powerful version, I think, of of feminism, right? And so um, I don't recall where, but in another part of the book, they talked about how abolition requires us to work and organized against oppression to create the world we want to need, right? And feminism is the guide for that work. And I I just loved that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That might have been in the now section or the epilogue, uh, right? Sort of tying everything together, right? Um, That this is the the work we must do, and here's the guide for that. Uh, I thought that that was incredible, right? And so um, they also made this point, And I agree that, you know, abolition and feminism together is, you know, what we need to address the most pressing issues of our times. Right. And so throughout the book, they, they shared these real life examples from all around the world of the impact of abolition, feminism work and the work it's had on, as you talked about, addressing gender and sexual violence, right? And mm-hmm. they bring in examples about immigration and, and yep. what ICE has done. Um, you know, of course, the harm of the criminal punishment system and, and certainly police violence as well, right? Um, but they also stressed how abolition feminism demands that we work to address the immediate and everyday needs for safety and support of the people impacted by the harms while we also do that other work. Right. Yep. And so the the work of and that work is the work of dismantling these carceral systems and things like reforms that only keep the criminal punishment system in play. Right. And, mm-hmm. and strengthen it really, mm-hmm. um, you know, to be frank. So um, I think the the crux of this book or what's most powerful about it is is the fact that and the notion that abolition feminism is so powerful because it demands both. It demands that we do that work while also keeping folks Um, at the forefront um, and, and making sure that their safety is attended to and they're supported in all of the ways. Right. And so that's why I particularly love that you brought up the, the act and, and thinking about, you know, who is missing and how the state gets to decide these things Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't center the folks affected by this violence in any way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It doesn't respond to their needs either effectively. So, Um, The so the now section, Mm -hmm. um, your favorite, (laughs) I guess we can we can uh, fully state here. Yes. Uh, So I really appreciated it as well. Um, Just to see all the ways that abolition feminism is organizing is happening uh, and has happened in Chicago. Yeah. Um, You know, people organize to expand the demands for accountability for cops uh, beyond just convictions for murder um, to, you know, additional accountability for defunding those departments to fund, uh, black futures. Yes. Um, to organizing against, uh, spending for a new Academy for police, um, particularly in the wake of Chicago closing down schools, right? Public schools. Yeah. Um, right. So, um, you know, there was also work done to educate the public on how much money the police department takes up out of the Chicago city budget, um, which was a lot. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. uh uh-huh. um, The part that I want to bring up here is the analysis of the ways that an organizer um, spoke to a crowd by condemning police with some colorful language. Yeah. Um, so the organizers of that event um, that she was speaking at uh, were not pleased uh, with this colorful language. Uh, and so there was some hubbub and uproar in in response to that. Um, so the authors wrote about that. This moment offers another reminder, both that our organizing must take on questions that some perceive to be uncomfortable and also that our work must open up pathways for people to flourish. Prison jails and police are always hiring. Mm. And yet Chicago fires teachers disproportionately Black educators and closes public schools in Black and Brown neighborhoods. No one hires poets and artists, yet resources are seemingly always available for surveillance cameras and school police. This form of organized abandonment, to use the the term coined by David Harvey and extensively developed by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, maps how environments are shaped to create optimal and flexible conditions for capital. And are intentionally challenging to recognize creating opportunities for critical engagement asking the other question Mm. is part of the work of abolition feminism yes so i really appreciated this section um, because in particular i think it highlights how abolition feminism um, is a process that i think works to destabilize the ways we think about the systems around us yes and to find new pathways to life-giving and affirming structures uh, that would be supportive of the lives that we want to lead. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I loved that story, that case study of that, yeah. of that woman sort of at this event. And yeah, she had some colorful language uh-huh. and, I, and there was nothing yeah. about it that felt wrong to me. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it speaks to, um, you know, What people are feeling and needing in moments, Mm -hmm. right? And sort of Mm -hmm. people's raw reactions to, you know, the things that you talk about here. Y'all are closing schools. Y'all are firing educators. You know, there's no resources for for art, (laughs) poets, and artists, right? But, uh, you know, the the amount of surveillance cameras we have in some of our cities and our spaces is absurd, right? We're expanding the reaches you talked about around. Folks in, with electronic monitoring, right? Like there's, there's, there's seemingly always money in our budgets, uh, you know, for the criminal punishment system to expand in all these mm-hmm. spaces, but not for the things that we need, right? And so that's the, that's the piece that really resonates with me when I think about the power of um, abolition feminism um, and the work that it gets to do. So I, I loved that story. I loved. There's so many. Um, Chicago really is uh, a beautiful case study for, mm-hmm. um, what this can look like, um, and what this does look like in action. So, um, I, I don't know how they sat <laughs> and made decisions about, you know, how do, how do we, how do we highlight this? How do we showcase this? You know, what city do we choose? Because in many ways they highlighted a number of places and spaces, um, throughout the book. Yeah. Um, uh, But Chicago was, I think, the right choice for this. So I appreciated Mm -hmm. that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was definitely, there's definitely a lot of good work happening there in terms of response to uh, a city government that doesn't seem to care about most of its citizens. Not at all. Um, All right. Well, this feels like a good spot to shift and talk about some application. All right. uh, And the the ways we can continue to apply this to our uh, lives. Uh, On a day-to-day basis. So um, I think one of the most important parts of the book, um, the authors talk about some guiding principles they have in writing it. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to share, I think, two of those uh, as my application. They focused on how different approaches and opinions actually strengthened the work of writing this book and the work of organizing because it broadened their reach and it broadened their analysis. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm talking about when you share values or a vision for liberation, right? Um, not necessarily trying to, uh, bridge a, a big gap between, um, you know, an abolitionist and, um, I don't know, some Rand Paul, pick out a a random right wing person from the, the, the Republican party. Um, that's not necessarily going to be what's going to get you somewhere um, because that they're opposed to each other in, in terms of the, their vision for the world, right? Right. Um, but when you share a vision, you share values. The disagreements on how to get to that vision matter. Um, and when they're engaged effectively in some creative generative conflict, they can strengthen the process that yes. you use to get there. Yes. Right? Um. And so I think that's an important piece of it, and that's something that the authors talked about um, grappling with, yeah. um, throughout the writing and spending some time um, with, yeah.
0: right? Which is which is necessary, right? Yeah. To get to this place and to pro- and in their case produce this beautiful book, uh-huh. right? But I think you're right; it speaks to uh, a larger process that can apply to other things as well, right? Mm-hmm. As we think about liberation, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and the, so the other part that I really appreciated is they discussed that abolition feminism isn't set in stone because they've written this book, right? Um, This work is growing and it's morphing through organizers' experimentations, um, through people visualizing new futures that exist outside of gender violence and the prison industrial complex and the world that we're existing in now. Um, So this is, right, genealogies and lineages um, that will further grow, they'll further develop uh, into something Else. And so the world that we want to live in.
0: Absolutely. And they sort of serve as an influence for what's to come. Right. Yeah. And a reference point for um, where we can go, where we've been and where we can go. And so that's the power of this book. I, I love that. Um, you know, it's really, I think, to me, hard not to present the entire book as application. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> right? it, there's it examples is. of it throughout the whole book. It is. Application is throughout. It's throughout. Thing, right. And so, you know, uh, when we think about the fact that, you know, this is all about abolition feminism in action and, you know, how abolition feminism is a is a paradigm and a, and a praxis that helps us to, to really name and address the violence of sy- uh, systemic oppression in all its forms. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that to me makes the whole book um, and certainly Uh, abolition feminism they are the application Um, but when i when i was reading the final words of the of the book in the epilogue section i was really drawn to 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 it um into this section and so um, i wanted to share that because they use a good portion of the epilogue to bring the point home about how abolition feminism is responsible for so much of the of the collective liberation we've seen and experienced right and to to call on us to continue that work right Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to share um that spirit in their final words here so they say this is the abolition feminist imperative of the both and the need to rigorously pay attention to what came before, but also to move expansively and generatively and be willing to learn and unlearn. The imperative to recognize that dominant power structures will attempt, often successfully, to absorb our labor and demands, and yet we still forge new languages and practices, and we work anyway. Rather than contradictory, these tensions, painful and pleasurable, are the work. This book is an invitation to readers to write and organize, to create other abolition, feminism, now texts, films, collectives, study groups, parties, and more. Freedom is a constant struggle. We are one collective that has worked to push forward these linkages between abolition and feminism. And all of our work reminds us daily of the vibrancy of this landscape, the stakes of this work, and the imperative to learn from each other now yeah that was
1: um a powerful way for them to close out the book yeah um i feel like it ties into some of what i was saying too absolutely come on now (laughs) um all right so that's great let's talk about homework What, what are some things we want to continue to do to learn more um so there are a ton of resources and toolkits that the author's name throughout the book yes um so i want to spend a little time with some of those uh and learn more from those works um one of them is Coins, Cops, and Communities, which was written by the Chicago chapter of the American Friends Service Community, uh, which is a Quaker organization. Yeah. Uh, and another organization that has put out a lot of toolkits and curricula is Project Nia, yeah. which was founded by and run by uh, Miriam Kaba. Um and they've released a whole lot of stuff, including Prison Industrial Complex 101 uh, and Something is Wrong, Exploring the Roots of Youth Violence and Transformative Justice, a curriculum guide. So there's a ton of stuff that they reference and, and point to as um, organizing um, for abolition feminism that I think is um, sort of crucial to learn beyond the things that get published by, you know, publishing houses but the things that people self publish and post on their websites and and use uh in community i think are important
0: for us to learn from and 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 seek out as well absolutely yeah i you're right there's so much in the way of resources and toolkits that they name throughout this book uh, there's so many organizations that they name right and mm-hmm. they talk about and they talk about their successes and challenges and wins and losses right and then the whole back part of the book is all of these these res- this appendix of just incredible yeah. um uh, information and resources that i didn't really get to um mm-hmm. to be honest right and so you know i think my homework is i really want to just reread this book i want to spend more time with it you know i i sort of had to i read this book a little bit quickly to get prepared for today but mm-hmm. um you know, even thinking about all the artwork that's in this book is astounding, right? And so I I just want to spend more time with it. I want to do some research into all the incredible organizations and campaigns um, that they talk about throughout the book. Again, all of the resources and toolkits you mentioned that they, that they reference. Um, And I, you know, I, I think I want to spend more time thinking about the ways in which I can personally engage more with abolition feminism work, right? Mm, and thinking mm. and, and praxis, you know, I, 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 I was just so inspired by this book and everything that I learned. And so I want to just dive deeper into it. And I'm sure that's going to involve more conversations with you, my friend. So um, yeah, that's, that's my homework just to cool. pick the book back up again and, and keep going.
1: Yeah. Um, and I, so I want to shout out a couple more organizations that they mentioned. Yeah, um, please. Survived and Punished. Is one Insight? Yes. Uh, critical Resistance is an organization we've talked about here before. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I had another one in my in my brain, but I just blanked on that. Um, but yeah, there are so um many Sisters Inside. I think that yes. was in Australia. Yes, I believe. Um, so they did talk about some also international right um, organizations too. Um, but yeah, lots of lots of good stuff included in the book in the book cited in the book to continue to learn from so um, definitely lots to continue to uh, engage with there absolutely Um, but yeah all right so
0: damien you're up next time uh what do you bring to the table in our next episode i am all right so next week i'm going to bring yet another current event to the table for us if that's all right with you sure all right um Uh, You know, this is a current event, um, but really it's a longstanding issue and crisis uh, facing so many folks and really all of us. Um, But it's been, I think, really heavily present in the news recently. And there's I think there's certainly a way (laughs) there's undoubtedly a way to look at this as a social justice issue. So um, I'm talking about and I want us to talk about student debt. Um, and specifically the notion of canceling student loan debt mm-hmm. um, and, and what that could mean for, for millions of Americans and, again, all of us in the context of, of social justice and collective liberation. So um, I found a few articles and resources for us to have this conversation and, and, and certainly I'm sure – uh, other things will pop up, we'll find along the way. Um, so we'll 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 bring everything we've got um, to this next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pieces I found, the first is called, it's a piece in the Atlantic by Jerusalem De, De, Demsus, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, called Who Really Benefits from Student Loan Forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is a piece in the Boston Globe by Andre M. Perry and Carl Romer called It's Not Too Late for Biden to Become an Anti-Racist President. Um, the third is a piece in the American Prospect by David Dayen called "Republicans Admit Biden Can Cancel Student Debt." Hmm. Uh, how, how about, that? How about um, that? And I'm sure we will consult um, some recent uh, posts and and things from our friends over at the Debt Collective. Yeah, um, they've been saying a lot about this issue right so if folks want to mm-hmm. check them out with us um, they are at strike debt on twitter and at the debt collective on instagram so yes uh yeah i'm i'm looking forward to talking about this because i think there this is um this is a really important issue that affects again all of us really um and could have such a tremendous impact on people's lives um yeah. and so um i'm excited to, to check about it next week Yes, definitely. I think uh, this is also work
1: that we've we've referenced here and there, yeah. right? We talked about Astra Taylor's book. Yes, um, talked about debt forgiveness. Um, I think I think we've talked about. Um, I think I went on a on a l- ranting monologue about Ronald Reagan. Um, you? It doesn't ranting sound monologue? like me at not all. At all. <laughs> ranting mo- monologue about Ronald Reagan? <laughs> definitely not me. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, yeah. So. You know he's one of the people that helped get us into this mess, yeah. um, and so we've talked about him as in the context of being the the former governor of California and response to political movements by students uh, in California in the '60s. Yep. Um, and yeah. here we are. And here we are. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that um, next week. They they also have a book uh, the uh, the debt collective published a book um, called Can't Pay
0: Won't Pay. So oh, we might be able to yes. reference some stuff from that yes. too. Um, there's really right. no shortage of resources. Yeah, there's, can, a, there's, a, can, lot, there's a lot to bring, get into. So, Well, I'm sure we'll have a, a wide-ranging conversation. Definitely. Awesome. Alright,
1: sounds great. Uh, looking forward to that next week, but we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Internet Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with the people in your life, uh, follow us on social media, check us out on YouTube, uh, sign up for our email list to get notified about notified about any new things we have going on behind the scenes.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week.